All right, well, let's take out our Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 9. And today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as it came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what wonderful riches are ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your truth is more desirable than gold. It is sweeter than the honeycomb. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And so we thank you, O gracious Father, for the tremendous spiritual treasure which is ours. And we ask, O God, that we may be good stewards of your truth. Be with this your servant, as the word is expounded and applied to our hearts. May we give glory to you, for your wonderful works, for your promises, for the peace that we have in Jesus, our Savior. 
Help us, O God, to have ears to hear. Help us to have eyes to see. Mold us, shape us, convict us. Apply your truth to us in Jesus' name. Amen. A sign points to a thing signified. A sign points to a thing signified. Consider for a moment if you were in a strange city and you were trying to get to the airport. You might see a picture of an airplane on a signpost. And when you see that, you know, well, that's the way to the airport. Now, the airport, the airplane symbol is not your airplane. It's also not the airport. It is a sign. It is a symbol. It's a sign which points you in the direction of the airport, in the direction of the airplane, which you're trying not to be late for. This is how a sign works. Through the use of symbol and type, you are pointed in the direction of the thing which is signified. This is seen uh, in our New Testament signs, uh, the covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These point us to having been cleansed and united in Christ and in our remaining in fellowship with Christ, being uh, nourished, feeding on Christ, as it were. Now, these signs are not the thing signified. And yet, they are so attached that they point us to Christ. And so, there are two parts of the sacrament. First, you have the outward and sensible sign used according to Christ's own appointment. And second, you have the inward and spiritual grace which is being signified. (coughs) Now, of course... Uh, This applies particularly to uh, the covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments. And the rainbow is not a sacrament sign. So don't hear what I am not saying. I point this out to help to illustrate that we may understand how God gives signs which point us to spiritual realities. And so a sign points us to something. It points us to these spiritual realities. And so this is really what's in view in our text. When God makes covenant promises, most usually He attaches a sign to it. And this points the believer to great spiritual realities, spiritual treasure. Now in our text today, God promises that He will no longer flood the earth, and then He gives a sign. He gives the sign of a bow in the air, in the clouds. Now in future weeks, we will read of God's promising to set His people apart as His own possession. Now in the Old Testament, the sign given, of course, was a sign of circumcision. We see this with Abraham. And in the New Testament... It is the sign of baptism. And both, the special relationship between God and His people is being signified. So these covenant arrangements from God are vital for us to understand in order to appreciate redemptive history. And in particular, the work which Jesus does at the cross in His resurrection as He redeemed to Himself a people from among all the nations. 
And so here, in our text, we have Noah and his family, and they, are, they have now exited the ark. They had spent uh, the better part of a year. And they've come out from the ark, and there is a promise made to Noah and to the earth that the floodwaters would no longer come, that they would no longer destroy all flesh. God would preserve life. He would preserve the life of men and of beasts. He would not destroy the world. In fact, what he will do is sustain the world. And he's doing this despite the fact that the heart of man is only wickedness continually. That was repeated even as they exit the ark. It says that God knows the heart of man is wicked. And so this covenant arrangement made here is an administration of what is called the covenant of grace. And is in some sense part of God's, what we might call, common grace. But also points again to this greater spiritual realities. For God was going to expand His covenant of grace, and He was going to set about saving people from their sins. But of course, in order for that to come to pass, in order for God to save to Himself a particular people, for Him to set His affections upon a particular people, there needed first to be people. In other words, the generations needed to come forth from Noah. They needed to be preserved from Noah. The world needed to be repopulated. There needed to be human beings. There needed to be animals on the earth in order for God, all of God's promises to come to pass. And so this is really where we pick things up in the narrative here in Genesis chapter 9. And we begin in verse 1. And it says here that God blessed Noah and his sons. God blessed Noah and his sons. Now, this blessing of God upon Noah and his sons... It was not only for the, these four, you know, Noah and his three sons, nor was it for the eight, you know, the wives also, all those who had exited from the confines of the ark. But this blessing upon Noah and his sons ought to be viewed as a general blessing upon all of mankind, all those who would come from Noah and his sons. Later, there will come a special blessing upon Israel. Uh, There will come to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's going to come to Moses at Sinai. But here it says, Noah and his sons. And so what is in view is them and all those who would come from them because Noah and his sons are now representatives of all of humanity. They were all that was left of humanity at this point. And so this is where humanity was to start over again. Now the fact that this blessing is for all of humanity becomes more clear actually by looking back on chapter 8 and verse 21. God had destroyed all flesh except for those who were spared in the ark. Nevertheless, sin had not been destroyed, at least not yet. And God didn't wipe out all flesh to wipe out all of sin. And so despite the the fallen human condition and the fact that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, God had determined to bless humanity. 
God graciously presents again the task of exercising dominion over the earth. But unlike in the garden, where people were sinless, right? Adam was created very good. Everything was very good. He was without sin. Now we are starting over, but now we have fallen men. Nevertheless, they are still image bearers. And so it's these sinful image bearers, those who hold the image of God, who are now to repopulate the earth. Children, therefore, are truly a blessing from the Lord. For to procreate is to fulfill God's mandate for humanity, to fill the earth. Therefore, children ought not to be disparaged nor exploited, but are to be celebrated by responsible parenting and for society to protect them. Mankind was to be good stewards of the earth. Although our world is tainted by sin, is cursed, it still possesses value for the world produces life. Humanity, therefore, was in in some sense receiving a second chance. Even though man had spoiled it and could spoil it again, God was blessing. It is the second Adam, the offspring of Abraham, who would come ultimately and bring fallen creation under subjection and thereby redeem it. Of course, what we're speaking about here is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ who will bring all things into subjection under His feet. Man is only to have it under dominion for a season. And so even as the creation mandate of chapter 1 sort of serves as the backdrop of the blessings here in verse 1, what is missing from the post-flood mandate to be fruitful is the language of subduing and dominion. You notice that. It says that they're to be fruitful and multiply, but it doesn't repeat the part about subduing and having dominion. And the absence of these terms may be because the ruling and subduing now is going to become very much more difficult for man. For he's a sinner. And the creation has been affected and infected with sin. Circumstances have changed from the way things were in the garden because of the burden of the fallen human condition, because of sin in the world, because things in our world don't work like they should. We we all understand that. We we experience the miseries of this life. We, We see how things don't work like they're supposed to. Sometimes it's your computer not working the way it's supposed to. We all understand this. Things have changed. The environment has become much more hostile than it was in the beginning. And as it says, speaking of the animals, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Things have changed in our relationship to creation. Things have changed in our relationship to the animals. All animals, birds, creeping things on the earth, the fish of the sea, no longer were they living in perfect harmony with man. There's fear and dread towards humanity. This new wrinkle on life was brought about, though, for man's protection. Remember, this is God's provision for man. The world had become more violent and there was a, it was necessary then for the animals to have the fear and dread of man for his protection, 
to ensure that the animals would not be a threat to the human family. So far from the, the dread and, and fear of man being something we might view as you know, something that's cursing us, it's really actually for our blessing. Because Noah's world was a world of killing and, and a world of death. An aspect, by the way, which is old news for us, sadly. For we too live in a world of violence and killing and death. We just prayed about this in regard to the war in Ukraine. Animals will fear man, and thus God's providence provided a restraint on their violence against men. But there's more here. For the animals will also fear men because they have now become food for men. The animals were now being provided to man as a source of food. Just as the plants had been given for food before, now the animals were to be food as well. Now the eating of meat was to be an important part of man's diet. But there were instructions given. There were provisions. There were limitations. Now it's not explicitly stated whether or not man was allowed to eat meat prior to the flood. Nothing is said one way or the other about this, but the provision now given in verse 3 at least seems to indicate that perhaps man previously was, was, did not possess permission to eat the animals. That's not, that's not necessarily clear. I wouldn't necessarily be dogmatic on that point, but it seems the point is in that direction, at least. But here, he does have permission. But even as man could now eat meat, this provision of other food sources had its limits. Man could eat the meat, but he was not to eat the blood. This was the boundary. He was not to eat the blood. Now why? Why was this? Because blood is equated with life in the Scriptures. The blood is equated with the life of the animal. In forbidding the eating of the blood, the regulation instills a respect for and a sacredness for life. Man was not to be a savage like the animals. He was to have a proper respect for life. Now you'll note that this command to not eat the blood is repeated in the Mosaic Covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant, in the law given, they were not to eat the blood. And then it's repeated again in the New Testament as a part of the instructions given to the Gentile church at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And so this idea that the life is in the blood is also important as we understand the words of institution at the Lord's Supper. For Jesus said that the cup is a new covenant in His blood. In Christ, don't we have spiritual life? By His shed blood? So the sacrificial system, the shedding of the blood of animals was to indicate the giving of the the animal's life in the place of the one who was offering the sacrifice. And so although man now had permission to eat the meat of the animals, this restriction was placed on it. They were not to eat of the blood. And, And two, in terms of the animals, it's assumed that they would care for the animals. 
Man was not to disregard the gift given by God. When the law was given, even the animals enjoyed a Sabbath rest. You you see that in the Ten Commandments. Even animals were given a Sabbath. God cared for the well-being of His animal kingdom, and He had given them as a gift to men, to use, to enjoy, to take care of. And so important is life that there's a reckoning for life. Here God gives another directive concerning lifeblood, that is the blood of men. Verse 5. For your lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning. From every beast, I'll require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. The shedding of human life, the shedding of human blood requires a reckoning. And why is this? Again, because human beings are created in God's image. Whereas the previous prohibition against the eating of the blood of animals did not include a specific sanction. There wasn't anything like, if they do this, then here's what needs to happen. But here, the consequence for taking a man's life is given. If a beast or a man takes the life of a man, another uh, takes the life of a human being, then their life was to be forfeit as well. Human death requires an accounting. Every human death Uh, requires an accounting. Death must result for those who take another's life. By the way, an admission that Reuben makes concerning Joseph in Genesis chapter 42 and verse 22, when when, uh, Joseph is presumed to be dead, Reuben understood that an accounting was necessary uh, in thinking that he was dead. And so verses 5 and 6 present God as a prosecuting attorney and a judge against all those who shed the blood of men because the taking of the life of man is first and foremost an offense against God. For man is made in God's image. This is why the life of men is so important. But even as God prosecutes the case, it is our fellow men who are to be the executioners. This is, this is interesting. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's, it is his brother. By his brother. The penalty for murder is not only to be realized after death and God bringing retribution. It is to be realized in this life by fellow men. It is by the hand of men that the murderer is to pay the penalty. Now, what's interesting is this is different from the way the first murder was handled. The first murder of Cain taking the the life of his brother, God dealt with that murder. But here, it is man who is to bring the retribution. As one commentator puts it, exacting retribution is not a personal matter, but a societal obligation. In this, uh, John Calvin comments, this may be the seed of the power of the state. This is the power of the state in seed form. That is, the state uh, wields the sword and executes justice. 
something that is further developed in history and in Scripture, particularly Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. The power of the sword, the power of the state to execute those who take life. Justice, then, is to be done. That's what's in view here. Justice is to be done by men for men. To take a life, to take the life of another human being requires justice upon the perpetrator. Now, our modern world, understand, our modern world has a skewed version of justice. But isn't doing justice one of the things which the Scriptures calls us to? Are we called to do true justice? We see that here in our text. Does not the Lord require that we do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God? True justice is a decidedly Christian concept. And when it comes to life, God does, does not God consider Life to be precious in His sight. After all, man is made in His image. And since all human life is precious to God, when someone ends another person's life, justice is required for that. You you know, even an unbeliever understands this. Except, it seems, in the cases of the most innocent among us. Isn't this the great tragedy of abortion in our time? And the shedding of men's blood. And to what end? The most helpless of life is ended. Their blood is shed for what? Convenience? Money? The blood of the murdered little ones cry out from the ground in our own nation, just as Abel's blood cried out against Cain. This issue requires justice to be done, not through mobs and vigilante uh, work, but through a changing of our governing authorities, for the sword of justice belongs to the civil magistrate. But when our governing authorities do nothing in exacting justice upon murderers, then they will themselves personally be held accountable, just as I am held accountable for the preaching of the gospel. There will come a time when there will be an accounting done by God. But we live in a democracy, and your votes and your voice matters. And in this sense, this is a warning. This is a warning for those who are lawmakers, but a warning for voters as well. God has provided protection for His people, and He requires that the blood of men, as men shed blood, that there be an exacting of retribution against it. What will be done? What will be done? And note the protection of God for His people through the fear and dread of animals and through the retribution brought against those who shed the blood of other human beings. And you will note also that this provision of God has been framed with the creation mandate being repeated again. Look at, uh, look at verse 7. And Noah and his sons are commissioned to propagate human life, to be fruitful and to multiply and to increase greatly upon the earth, to multiply in it. 
Society will be able to thrive and increase only if it is protected from unbridled violence and wickedness, which had been seen during the time of Nephilim and of the tyrants in the pre-flood world. And so God has these provisions to ensure the, the propagation of His people. Because human life is precious in His sight. And so God has made these provisions. He's made these provisions so that mankind may survive. And after this, then God, you'll see as we continue in our text, God enters into covenant with His creation. And this covenant includes not only humanity, but all of the creatures, all of the animals, the birds, every, every creature which had come out of the ark. And just as God had promised in chapter 6 to save the creatures through representatives here, He promises to never again cut off flesh by the waters of the flood. No more will there be a worldwide flood over the whole of the earth. And, and in the Hebrew, it's actually very emphatic. It's, it's literally like this, Now I am, behold, I am establishing my covenant. God is very emphatic on this. And the obligations for the covenant rest on the Lord alone. For He has determined to no longer bring about a universal flood. This is also an unconditional promise from God. There are no contingencies. There are no stipulations placed upon it. It is what we may call a one-way covenant. God is establishing the promise and He will bring it to pass even the sign which is given, which serves as a reminder. is not a threat to men, but to God Himself. Even as the dark storm clouds gather and the lightning flashes and there's peals of thunder and, and torrential rain and wind, God will not flood the whole earth. All flesh will not be cut off. The world will not be destroyed. And the fact that God has promised to not destroy creation again by a flood must be stressed because keep in mind, nothing had actually changed in terms of the sinfulness of man, had it? The intentions of man's heart is wickedness continually. Humanity is still fallen. And what this shows, of course, is God's Forbearance, his common grace as he waits for his people. God is so forbearing with us, isn't he? It ought to convict us when we aren't so forbearing. God is so, forbears with people. Man's intention is sin all the time. God's intention is to redeem man and to restore him. And in order to do this, humanity was needed to continue on the earth. And so God's plan of rescue was moving forward. His promise, the promise of the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent was to come to pass. And so again, we see the golden thread of Scripture woven throughout with these covenant promises from God, uh, the, the covenant of grace, his, his bringing about redemption. God is bringing a variety, brings a variety of administrations to this one covenant of grace. Salvation was to increase and, and, and is refined. But at this stage, God's promise is to preserve. 
God is preserving people. God's special favor on people and upon a nation, and ultimately God's special favor upon the elect in Christ are yet in the future uh, in this. And so God makes this covenant promise, and then as He gives the promise, uh, you'll notice starting in verse 12 that there's also a sign given. And this was a sign which was not only for Noah and for his generation, but is for all generations uh, perpetually. It's the rainbow. In the Hebrew, though, you'll note it's simply the bow. It being called in English a rainbow, of course, is associated with the fact that it appears with the clouds and with the rain. But it is simply called in Hebrew the bow. Now, the eternal nature of this promise is being stressed. The sign serves as a guarantee and a pledge from God. And so here we have really the first covenant sign given in the Scriptures. And again, this is an important concept throughout the Bible. And as a sign, the bow served as a permanent reminder of God's mercy and His grace. Now, of course, the bow... It's a weapon of war in the ancient world. In the ancient Near East uh, mythologies, the constellation of the stars in the sky, which came in the shape of a bow, were associated with the hostility of the gods. Here, the bow of the warrior has been hung up. God has hung up his bow. And you'll note where it points is away from the earth. A symbol of war and hostility has been transformed into a symbol of reconciliation between God and man. God and man, God in one sense, has made peace with his creation. And since this is a one-way covenant, the bow, which is, of course, the symbol of the threat of war and of death, is pointed away from the world, is pointed toward God Himself. It is hung up as a sign of peace. God will fulfill His obligations to mankind. And much like the covenant made later with Abraham, God takes upon Himself the threat for not fulfilling the covenant. Now, of course, what we're talking about is a natural phenomenon, which appears from our perspective... We know that the refraction of light results in a rainbow. And rainbows are actually round. <laughs> if you were in an airplane, you could, you could see this. We only see it from our perspective on the ground. But don't miss the point. I've, I've, actually, I've talked to students about this, and they're like, well, actually, Mr. Morgali, well, understand what God is doing here. Don't miss the point. God has placed this bow in the sky as a perpetual reminder. As often as it storms, and the, 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 and the world is full of storms. It's a reminder to Him, it's a reminder to us of His mercy and His grace. It is a sign which, like all signs, point beyond itself. It points to the absolute certainty of God's promises upon the earth, to all creatures, to mankind. It points to the trustworthiness of God. That He will fulfill all He has set out to do for the good of man and for His glory. 
the warrior has hung up his bow. Throughout the scriptures, what we learn about over and over again is God's grace. We learn of God's grace, His marvelous grace, God's covenant of grace. God has from the beginning set about to rescue undeserving wretches who deserve nothing but the pit of destruction. But we cannot fully appreciate God's grace and mercy without also understanding His justice, His holiness, His righteousness. For our God is a God of justice. And so what we've seen is hints of that here in Genesis. We've seen that the, the, the need for justice as murderers are to be held accountable for their murder. Right? All sin deserves death, the Bible tells us. Natural man is wicked and rebellious against his creator. But God will ultimately bring true justice and retribution. But he also has provided rescue from his wrath. For the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin, for all those who trust and rest in Him. Justice was served upon His flesh, and by His blood, by faith, you have been justified. This beloved congregation is the great hope that's within us, is it not? Is this not the thing we rejoice in? God's salvation has been accomplished Through Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, no longer are we subject to the tyranny of sin. No longer are we slaves to wickedness. And the new world which Noah inherited was just a foretaste, a foretaste of the transformed and renewed world which is yet to come. But we have a future hope, don't we? We look forward to that which Noah only had a shadow of. For in Noah's day, as in our own, sin sin remained. Even as it had been cleansed by the waters of the flood, sin still remained. It was in Noah's, Noah's heart. It was in the hearts of his sons. It was in the heart of his wife. It was in the heart of his daughters in law. But Jesus will come will one day return. And He will reconcile all things to Himself. He will usher in the fullness of His kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. And and beloved, we cannot fully imagine what this will be like. But it will be all that creation was supposed to be. It will be most glorious. And so we look forward to that. And so we wait. We pray. We walk by the Spirit. We put to death the sinful deeds of the flesh. We make disciples of the nations. We teach our children. We share the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect to the world. We cling tightly to our Savior, Jesus Christ, with grateful hearts for His tremendous grace, for His mercy, which is new every morning, for His loving kindness, His faithfulness, For He is our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, what amazing grace You have given to us. What blessings we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank You, O God, for Your provision. Not only to us, 
your elect from every nation. But to all of the world as you entered into covenant with your creation, promising to never again flood the earth. We know that this is part of your covenant of grace. It was part of your decree to rescue not only life from death, but to rescue the spiritually dead and to make them alive in Christ. God, thank you. Thank you for your love and faithfulness to us. Thank you for these signs, these reminders, which point us to these spiritual realities. Thank you that you condescend to us that way, that we may be reassured over and over and over again. For we need reassurance. For our hearts are forgetful. Our hearts are prone to wandering. Thank you for the signs which point us to you. Help us by your Spirit to walk in newness of life. We ask these things in the powerful name of our Savior, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.